Welcome to Visionaries. I'm Karen LaBelle, your host, and you'll find us here at PRN.FM, the Progressive Radio Network, every Monday at 10 a.m. And catch our back shows at visionaries.podbean.com. And our guest today is John David Ebert. John, are you there? I am, I am. I'm excited to be here. Great, terrific. So I've known Ebert since actually... um, uh, one of the things we'll talk about is Ebert's uh, over, what is it, 600 videos on YouTube. And one of them, uh, sad of them, 12 of them he just uh, completed is an autobiography. And in it he mentions his first public lecture for the Joseph Campbell Foundation given at the New York Open Center. And I just happened to be there, which is where I met yeah. Ebert. And... Uh, uh. So I've been following this incredible career ever since. So, John, who is John David Ebert? What do you do, and what are you famous for? Well, I guess you could call me a cultural critic, for lack of a better term, uh, an independent cultural critic. And I've been writing, uh, I've got like 26 books I think I'm up to by now, on uh, everything you can think of uh, from graphic novels and films uh, to understanding how to understand contemporary art. Uh, to the ecological crisis in the age of catastrophe, uh, and to discussions about the new media and the implications of things like the Internet and Facebook and Google and Amazon. Um, that's in the new media invasion. And um, so I've been writing these essays, yeah, way back about the time we first connected. And in a way, John, <laughs> you're responsible for all this because uh, if you recall, I was writing nothing but fiction pretty much up to the point when we met. And then one day you called me and you said, would you like to submit an essay on Robinson Jeffers for our uh, Joseph Campbell newsletter? And I was like, sure, I'd love to do that. I'd been reading him. So I sat down, and when I wrote that essay on Robinson Jeffers, something into my head just clicked. And all of a sudden I knew that I'd found my medium, that it was going to be nonfiction, uh, cultural criticism, not fiction. Fiction had been uh, too much of a struggle and wasn't getting anywhere with it. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, it was like putting on a different set of clothes and I'm ready to go, and I was, and I knew from right when I sent you that essay that that, that was going to be my mode. It just oh, felt great. right. Great. So, <laughs> that's, well, most of this is thanks to you, John. <laughs> well, the other the other part of it was that you, um, in the lecture you gave to the Campbell Foundation way way back, you talked about a scene in um, Apocalypse Now of the books on um, on Kurtz's desk while he's reading from T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. And to me, that's what movie criticism should have been about. And so we, we created cinema discourse based on that. So tell us about that scene in the movie and what it led to and the way you approach movies. Right, yeah, that's, that's a key scene uh, or a key moment for me because that song came out when I was 11 years old. And uh, I, of course, knew nothing about the Vietnam War or culture or anything. I was just mesmerized by the film, and I went back to see it over and over and over again. Uh, and it remains my favorite film. Uh, so over the years, by the time I got to college, 
um, I knew the books on Fritz's desk, what they were, because I'd seen it so many times by that point. It was uh, James Fraser's The Golden Bow and Jesse L. Weston's From Ritual to Romance. And then he was reading from the poetry of T.S. Eliot. So I already knew all of that. And then when I took a literature class uh, as a freshman, I think it was, on uh, modern poetry, we read T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, which I had not read at that point. And we read it, and I was just absolutely blown away by it. I was totally amazed. I was like, wow, so this is what Coppola was talking about in his film. So now I need to understand this poetry. It was a very difficult, enigmatic uh, poem for someone to understand who'd been raised on a diet of comic books and Stephen King novels. You know, this was totally new to me. But I knew I had to understand it, so I went to the library, and I got first a golden bow. I worked on that. Uh, I read the just Sorry, let me just, let me just interrupt. Yeah. In the golden bow, in one of the abridged editions, it opens with the uh, killing of the king, which is part of Mesopotamian rituals, and in, maybe in, sometimes in seven-year cycles. And <clears throat> it is a point where some king says, hey, I got an idea. Why don't we sacrifice a bull instead? And at the point, <laughs> where, at the point where Kurtz is murdered in yeah. Apocalypse Now, there's a cut to the beheading of a bull. Yes, right, exactly. Uh, and so Coppola knew the references, and he knew what he was doing, that the, the, the sacrifice of the king, uh, which was very often connected with astrological cycles. It could be a 12-year Jupiter cycle, you know, like it was in India. Or um, in Greece, it tended to be eight-year cycles uh, to correspond to Venus. Every eight years, Venus comes back in the same spot in the sky that it was in eight years ago. Um, or they'll cut it in half, and you'll have two kings uh, who rule. One, one will rule for four years, and the other for the other four years as part of a kind of equivalent of the uh, a macro equivalent of the, the solstices. One will be the winter king, and the other will be the, the winter king for four years, and the summer king for four years. Uh, so it's a very old, well-known tradition, uh, ritual regicide. Um, in the first dynasty in, in Egypt, um, it started there, where uh, the first king Aha. Um, was sacrificed along with his wife and children and about 15 or so of his retainers. They were all sacrificed, uh, probably given poison or strangled to death, and they all went down with him into the abyss in imitation of the completion of a, a planetary cosmic cycle of one sort or another. And yes, indeed, bulls were very often connected with these rituals, uh, especially like in ancient Rome uh, during the Hellen <coughs> Hellenistic period, uh, the cult of Attis, the god Attis, A-T-T-I-S, was a Phrygian god that was also associated with the sacrifice of a bull. They would kill a bull and get underneath it and bathe themselves in a, in a baptism of the bull's blood. Um, so that was common um, at that time. And then, so yeah, Coppola built all of this, took all of this ancient tradition out of history that's as old as the dawn of uh, the beginnings of high civilization in the Bronze Age, 3500 BC, and embedded it in that film uh, as part of the cosmic cycle now, the killing of Hertz, the ending of the wasteland that he has created. Uh, due to his insanity, which is almost like radiating out around him, uh, this whole world of insanity, and he becomes like a symbol of the insanity of the Vietnam War in general. So they put him, to, Willard kills him, that's the end of that cycle, and then it starts raining at the end of the film, just as it does at the end of the wasteland when the thunder comes. And the thunder announces, the thunderclap at the end of uh, the wasteland announces the rain that comes to green the wasteland with the death of the degenerate king. The sickly king's gone, and his power is magically tied to the land. So if he's either physically or mentally ill, the land, too, is going to be corrupt. So if you kill him, get him out of the way, we bring in a new king. And Willard comes out of the steps with the machete in his hand in Kurtz's manuscript, and he's at the top of the steps after he's killed Kurtz, 
and all of the natives begin to bow down to him, and they are ready to uh, have him be the new king and perpetuate the cycle. But he tosses the machete aside and walks away. He refuses to play the role. So he sort of, in a way, he inaugurates a new cycle by breaking it and, and putting a stop to it, uh, and then leaves with the manuscript, and then the rain begins. So all this bringing, is connected bringing together us, with bringing uh, us, bringing us modernism. Yeah, exactly right. That's right. We're no longer yes, bringing in us mo- mythic cycle. Yep, that's right. We're out of it, and time becomes linear instead of circular. Um, like Phil and Flusser uh, used to say in his books, myths run around in circles because <laughs> they're all so, based on cosmic cycles. And linearity, writing, Western rational thought is not circular. It's based on lines, assembling lines in a linear sequence, one after the next, that cuts the mythical circle of eternal return. And that's what Gene Gebser called uh, the mental consciousness structure that destroys the mythical consciousness structure that preceded it and was brought in together uh, with the Greeks and the Jews um, and also, to a certain extent, the Hindus. Uh, the Hindus are inventing the philosophy of almost exactly the same time that the Greeks are doing it in the 8th century uh, B.C. So the whole tenor of civilization begins to shift right around 800 B.C. from a purely mythical way of doing things, myths running around in circles, priests uh, pouring uh, you know, melted butter onto Vedic fire altars and Brahmin priests and knowing all the magic of the rituals, to then a philosophical understanding with uh, an individual like Yajnavalka, who comes in and introduces everyone to yoga and the philosophy of Atman and Brahman. So now it becomes philosophical, and the philosophical understanding is more important than than the ritual understanding. So yes, you're right in a way that um, him Willard putting an end to the mythical consciousness structure paves the way for modernism, the mental consciousness structure where things no longer run round in circles and it's based on linearity. So John, the the people making these movies like Apocalypse Now and another interesting one is the Clint Eastwood movie, In the Line of Fire, which is almost, you know, word for word, straight out of the Parsifal myth, and um, uh, where he fails, and, you know, the first time around, he, he's on JFK's, the bumper of JFK's car, he fails to jump to take the second bullet, he's in the wasteland of, uh, of uh, counterfeiting, which is also a Secret Service responsibility, and then there's a threat to the new president, and this time he jumps and takes the bullet. Um, and he's wearing a vest. And uh, so the whether it's conscious on the part of the filmmakers or unconscious, it's just that's what artists are capable of doing. They're tapped into this. Um, is there anybody else besides yourself that you can think of who's looking at movies from this kind of point of view? Uh, no, not that I can think of. Not as far as Jeez, looking at from a mythological. I don't know. I, I think I get just get the feeling that myth studies is uh, not what it used to be, and it doesn't have a whole lot of respect anymore. And in academe, I think it's very difficult for people to. It's just out of fashion. I don't know. It ran into a dead end. It seemed like Campbell was the sunset effect of that whole discipline, and when he died, it's almost like the whole thing went down the drain along with him. Uh, you know, he put out that grand. Magnum Opus, which is still my favorite of his books, the historical atlas of world mythology, just before he died, and then that, that was it. And um, there wasn't much in the field after him. One or two things, but but not a whole lot. And I get the sense that people just don't know myth anymore. And a lot of these kids who come to me, they're almost all millennials, uh, age range between 20 and 35. They all come to me, and they're like, who's Joseph Campbell? 
I'm like, you don't know who Joseph – how is that even possible? <laughs> you think they know who McLaurin is? Yeah, and they don't know who – well, they, us, they usually have at least heard of McLaurin. Right. But some of them have never heard of Campbell or don't know him or, you know, have never read The Hero with a Thousand Faces, which is like intro to Campbell, you know, 101. So just to – Yeah, just to orient our audience, we're talking to John David Ebert, and I think his uh, – Major hangout is YouTube, so go there and search. And I'm thinking in terms, we'll see if it works out that way, but I'm thinking in terms of uh, four of these shows uh, conversing with Ebert. So today I wanted to get some sense of who he is. And next week, go, or next, I'm sorry, next interview, we'll see when that runs, uh, talk about his intellectual foundations and to get his take in another interview on today's thinkers and then go into his current interest of hypermodernity. So going back to um, who is John David Ebert, uh, tell us about um, what I imagine must be your favorite environment, which is YouTube. What will we find there? What have you been doing there? And what are these 600-plus uh, videos about? <laughs> it sounds a little insane, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, I just uh, have been on there for 10 years, I guess. I guess it's been just about 10 years uh, uploading YouTube videos. Uh, I was doing this back before anyone else was, as far as I know, because I was looking for – I was trying to understand Heidegger, I recall, and I was trying to – it was just a wrestle. I couldn't do it, and um, there was nobody on YouTube. I, I thought maybe somebody on YouTube has free videos on how to understand Heidegger, but there was no, nothing there. They, no, they just tell you how to install a hard disk. <laughs> Yeah, at that time, 10 years ago, right, That's all. it was all technical stuff and people's vacation footage and, you know, the, the tsunami footage, which is what brought YouTube into being, the, the, the major, uh, we call it the tsunami, what year was yeah. it, it killed 300,000 people in uh, Asia, and uh, they created YouTube to have a site for people to upload the footage of the tsunami. So that catastrophe actually brought YouTube into being. I think, may have been 04, 03? I don't know. I'm terrible, um, So, yeah, so then I just started, um, after I did manage to understand Heidegger, I thought, well, let's do somebody a favor and put videos on there for how to understand Heidegger so they don't have to wrestle so much. So that's what oh. I did. I started making these Heidegger videos, uploading them for free, uh, and then I did one on uh, Oswald Spangler because I hadn't read The Decline of the West in a long, long time at that point, and I thought, it was always my favorite book. It's sort of, for me, the apocalypse now of the intellectual world. Uh, my favorite book and my favorite film. Um, so I went back and reread Spangler chapter by chapter and then did a, a, a video on understanding Spangler on each one of those chapters. And that remains one of my most popular series. Um, and so that's what I kept doing uh, for all these years, uploading, uh, trying to understand difficult texts, and then uploading uh, videos on how to understand these texts. And now everybody's doing it. <laughs> Back when I started 10 years ago, nobody was doing this. <laughs> so now everyone's doing it. Um, and oh. lately the project then has been uh, I've created a 12-part uh, electronic autobiography uh, that covers my entire life. Uh, each video is about 20 minutes long, 20-minute installments. Uh, I tried to keep it to seven-year cycles as much as possible. Um, and then just told the whole story of my life. So I figured, why not try it? I, I couldn't. There again, I, I think it may be a first. I've never seen anybody do an autobiography uh, on YouTube, uh, not to my knowledge. But there it is. So um, anyone curious about my life course uh, would learn almost you – know, I put everything on there. I was brutally honest 
um, I felt a bit naked doing it, but I figured if I'm not going to be brutally honest about this, um, then there's no point in doing it. So mm-hmm. I might as well just tell everything. <laughs> so, so that's what I did. It was a, a kind of a dice roll. So what are, uh, you know, I, I, I noticed you've got taking a, how far are you along in taking us through Campbell's Masks of God? And before you get to that, what are some of the others? I noticed you've been doing Camille Paglia. You've been doing uh, um, Jordan Peterson's um, uh, first book. So what are some of these series that you've explicated for us? Yes, um, right. I did a series explicating uh, Jordan Peterson's Maps of Meaning, um, and I got about halfway through that book before I just became completely bored by it. It's very badly written. I respect Jordan Peterson as an intellectual. He's very erudite and well-read. Bright guy, no question about that, but he doesn't know how to write. And uh, that book is a mess, and it really could have benefited from hiring an editor to uh, cut it down. It's extremely verbose and dry. It reads like a textbook. And not only that, it's all stuff that's recycled from uh, Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell. Um, and he didn't even make reference to Campbell in the book, not that I recall. Plenty of references to Jung, but not to Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces, which the book pretty much is a, is a rehash of. You know, um, not, not only that, sure. yeah. yeah, not only that, but uh, I'm also a big uh, Peterson fan, but that doesn't mean he's right about everything. And I think what yeah. he misses that we get from Campbell is in-depth knowledge of the other traditions, the Indian and Chinese and Japanese uh, philosophical traditions, which he's, you know, he's a little little bit into Taoism, but not very much. And uh, uh, for my taste, too much into Christianity. And so the the failure to really, and the other part of it is when you read the uh, the Golden Flower, uh, which Carl Jung did an introduction to, you see how these uh, late 19th, early 20th century German philosophers were freaked out by the uh, amorality and sexuality of Eastern thought and couldn't accept it. And uh, uh, Campbell totally gets over that. And, and uh, uh, you know, what's Evil for the antelope is lunch for the for the lion, uh, right? And and uh, I think that um, uh, Peterson is not able to make that leap. Yes. And and I think the reason yeah. is that he's rooted in Jung, and Jung was unable to make that leap. Right. It's very um, Eurocentric, I think, and Eurocentrism has been in ever since postmodernism uh, t- took over the field. None of those guys. And I've read all of them, Deleuze and Guattari and, and uh, Derrida and company. None of them studied other civilizations. They, they did not. Um, there's a real loss of knowledge there that comes in with that generation that came in after Campbell with, with the postmodern guys uh, that just focus on race, class, gender, and Western political problems, Marxism. And it's all West, West, West. And there's no mention of Buddhism or you know any other traditions. And it's like now we have to pretend that the rest of the world doesn't exist because it's now – it's assumed to be uh, colonializing. Well, How dare I, you go I, and try to understand another tradition? Uh, aren't you guilty of intellectual co- colonialization? That became the right, assumption. So I, I suffer from that. So for years I taught a course in non-Western architecture built on my late wife, Mimi LaBelle's work, who probably was the strongest person ever in all the world's civilizations. 
uh, you know, there would be people stronger in Egypt than she was, but uh, they wouldn't know anything about, they wouldn't have read the Papal Hole, or someone yeah. would be stronger, you know, but she was strong in all of them. And I took over her course in non-Western architecture, and we'd look at the symbolic structure, say, of Chinese culture, look at Taoism, and then see how that's manifest in the architecture, and do that for each culture. And that course has now been dropped and replaced by one on post-colonialism, on how these other uh, civilizations are screwed up by the West, which may or may not be true, but it uh, totally denies the existence of whole world civilizations uh, other than our own Western one. Right. Yeah. That seems to be the drift. I mean, of the current thinkers, only Peter Sloterdijk, the German thinker who's written the, 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 the massive uh, three-volume bubbles, or not, not Spheres trilogy, um, makes all these – he still retains references to – Spengler and um, the East, because he, he went and studied uh, in India. He lived in India for a while and studied under a, uh, a teacher. I forget the name of the, the guru that he studied under. So he'd been to India, and um, so you do find a lot of cool references in his books uh, still retaining a kind in, in a way, he, he's doing a, a similar thing to what I'm doing insofar as he's retaining that knowledge and trying to synthesize it with postmodern post thinking as well. Right create a kind of synthesis of the two instead of ha having the attitude that the French tend to have of mutual exclusivity to either one or the other for them. And I just don't see it that way. So, so what are some of the other video series that uh, people will find of yours on YouTube? I started the series on Camille Paglia. Uh, after doing Jordan Peterson, I started thinking about myth again. And uh, because I've been doing only for uh, philosophy for uh, the past few years, and I've been out of touch with myth for a while, and doing the Jordan Peterson thing kind of made me nostalgic for myth studies. And so I decided to take a look at uh, Camille Paglia's sexual persona. Um, and I worked on that for a little while. But then I got even more nostalgic for myth. And I thought, why don't I just do a thing on Joseph Campbell here? Let's so hang, up, hang, on just, hang on just yeah. a sec. So, so those yeah. people, for our listeners who, like me, uh, don't read books anymore. <laughs> Camille, <Yeah>. Paglia's, <laughs> Camille Paglia's sexual persona is now on audiobook. And oh, nice. well, I've got that on my phone, and I'm working my way through that. And it's um, for someone as steeped as you and I are in Campbell and this other material, it's, um, it's kind of simplistic. But it is good to see that someone of her stature is, is, is thinking this way. Right, right, exactly. Um, yeah, so she, she does have a very strong contact with myth studies and with Carl Jung. She didn't have anything nice to say about Campbell for, for whatever reason. I don't know but, why. Uh, you know, like I, have, I have a feeling yeah, I, that these are people who saw the Power of Myth TV series and have not read Mass of God. I mean, the, yeah. the idea of someone saying Campbell is um, superficial, and then you look yeah. at these four 700-page volumes with 100 pages of footnotes in each one of them. Uh, right. This is the, I mean, that's a substitute for a college education right there. Do you know, one of my mother actually read all four of them. She said it took her four years. She'd read it, then, she, <laughs> then she'd, she'd read one, then she'd follow up on the footnotes, then she'd read it again, and then she'd go on it's to the very next persistent. one. 
price. You know, that's a good idea. For me, you know, it was a a substitute for college education because I didn't discover Campbell until like my last year of college and, um, or thereabouts. And um, I didn't ever go back for higher degrees because I used Campbell's whole IRV as my curriculum. And so I did the same thing your mother did. Yeah. Yes, this is all the windows. Because you described how you couldn't pursue a graduate degree because it would be too specialized. So let me describe a little experience I had. I, yeah. uh, in my last, so I did four years of college, two years of architecture school. And um, I then decided I wanted to do exactly what we're talking about. And so I went, I said, well, I can't get a Ph.D. in philosophy because aesthetics will only be a tiny part of it. And I can't get a Ph.D. in um, uh, art history because art theory will only be a tiny part of it. So I went to my dean and I said, do you know of any school where, because what I'm interested in is what is the fundamental symbolic structure? Oh, and this dean had been one of the two professors who introduced me to Stengler, so. So I go to my architecture dean and I say, uh, what I'm interested in is how a culture has a symbolic structure and how that becomes manifest in its architecture. And then given our uh, electronic age, because uh, I had read, just read McGowan, how is that reflected in our world today? And the dean said, is there any school where I could do this? And the dean says, you seem to have a pretty good idea what you want to do. Why don't you go home to New- uh, go register for architecture 999 independent studies six times, go home and write your thesis, and now to me I'll give you a master's degree. So <laughs> I had to so I then spent a year just sitting on a bed with piles of books. <laughs> yep. That's just, Been there, you know, done that. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, I, when, you, when you describe how you did that, I have a strong appreciation of it. And I try to communicate to my students, this is what you have to do. You know, it may not be books, but you have to figure out what it is that you are interested in and get the opportunity. If you look at um, uh, Albert Einstein in the patent office, Isaac Newton retreating to his home estate to escape the plague, uh, and J.K. Rowling uh, hanging out in a uh, in a pub with a baby wrapped up next to her said it takes two years of being left alone to formulate your own thinking. Yeah, I think that's about right. Um, as soon as I got out of college, I went home and lived in my mother's basement uh, and did nothing but read Campbell's books uh, for a year. Oh, one more. One uh, more was Campbell himself, right? Who was in a cabin in yep. Woodstock, doing exactly, exactly. that. Right. Well, I read that he had said that, so I was like, "Well, if that's what it takes, then I guess you know I've got a free year here before I have to get a job. Let's just sit around and read." And that's what I did. James Joyce, Robinson Jeffers, Thomas Mann, all of Young's writings, uh, reread Spangler and Campbell again many times, and that's all I did for that that whole first year before my mother said, "Go get a job." Um, <laughs> And then, you know, <laughs> she's only going to put up with that for so long. <laughs> so tell us who, under the shade tree in the backyard. <laughs> yeah. So I want to spend another hour sometime going through all these uh, 
figures. But very quickly, yeah. tell us who is Joseph Campbell, who is uh, Robinson right. Jeffers, and who was the other one yeah. you mentioned, T.S. Eliot? So, yeah, Joseph Campbell um, is the big name in the field of myth and religious studies, alongside of Mircea Eliade, um, whom he always respected um, as the academic equivalent of what he was doing. He, he recognized that he was a popularizer and an entertainer. Um, he liked entertaining people with these myths and tales, whereas Eliade is very dry. He's got pretty much the same content, although I think it's interesting that though Campbell cites Eliade frequently in his books, I don't ever remember Eliade citing Campbell once. Right. <laughs> right. You know, he didn't return the favor. Um, so, yeah, so he became fascinated uh, with the whole field of mythology uh, after discovering when he was in Paris uh, um, in the 20s, modernism. You know, Picasso and James Joyce and he was reading Spangler and learning German. He was able to read in, in German. And um, Carl Jung. And uh, so that's what he was doing there. And then he came back uh, in 1929 just as the Depression hit, and there was no work. So uh, he was able to find somebody to rent him a cabin very cheaply uh, for five years, but he did nothing but read him. Well, that's all he did in this cabin, five years. And so he became, you know, a, a great a very uh, worldly, erudite, encyclopedic scholar of the type, you know, that came in with the Renaissance, that type of uh, worldly individual. So there's this vast erudition, uh, but I think he knew myth probably better than anyone ever has. I, I would say he even knew it better than Eliot. There are some yeah. gaps in Eliot's world. For, for instance, very little about Native American myth in Eliot, uh, right. almost none that I can recall. Uh, Campbell has all that covered, though. I mean, I, there's not one tradition or group that he didn't, know the myths of. And so he had this encyclopedic erudition, and then he wrote The Hero with a Thousand Faces in 1949, uh, where he took the term monomyth from uh, Finnegan's Wake, James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake, as the single myth of separation, initiation, and return, where uh, an individual who is disaffected from his social circumstances because there's some sort of a wasteland situation of the things people are living in shallow ways, perhaps, that there's no spirituality. Whatever the problem is, this guy leaves and says, I'm going to go find out what's going on here. And he has to go through a difficult road of trials into the woods on his own and uh, gets initiated somehow into the mysteries, the metaphysical mysteries, usually by encounter with a master of, of some sort. But then the ordeal has gone through. He himself becomes a master. And then he comes back to the society to teach uh, what he's learned. Sound familiar? It's oh, Luke, I, you know, Luke oh, Skywalker. <laughs> the whole story of Luke Skywalker, <laughs> which was well, deliberately go, uh, taken from... Let's go into this in more detail in a future show. But just quickly, who is Spangler and who is Robinson Jeffers? So Spangler uh, was Campbell's favorite author also. Um, he, he wrote The Decline of the West in 1918, just as World War I was winding down. And that book came out, and it was a huge bestseller over Europe because it gave people an explanation for the madness of, of the Great War that had just happened. Oh, it's because civilization is on the downturn now, which is entering into a period of the, the age of conflicts, uh, the age of uh, the rise of imperialism and the disintegration of Republican politics uh, that's analogous with what happened in ancient Rome at the time of the first triumvirate, let's say, and the disintegration of the Republic there and the rise of the empire out of the ashes of all those civil wars. And so he drew all these comparisons to all these other civilizations where he saw that each one of them looks like they pretty much followed the same route from a deeply religious inception where all the motivation is religious to a metaphysical period that brings in philosophy where there's still deeply metaphysical and not materialistic and it's an age of princes and, 
aristocrats and their rising power, and then uh, a declining age when rationalism starts coming in. Uh, the Socratic man comes on stage, as Nietzsche called him. Uh, it may be Socrates, it may be the Buddha, it may be the Pharaoh Akhenaten, but they each come on with a nihilism, a form of intellectual nihilism that begins to destabilize all of the traditions. So as they're destabilizing, then they wind down into the late phase, the winter phase, when uh, once the metaphysical archives that had held the society together start being deconstructed and they start collapsing, then uh, people start declining into civil war and chaos, and you start getting lots and lots of conflict and wars mm -hmm. until finally a power comes along to stabilize everything and create what Spengler called uh, the second, uh, the Caesars, the period of the Caesars, um, which Toynbee called the formation of a universal state, which I think is a better term. Um, so that's Spengler, and he had a huge influence on Campbell because of his understanding of cultural forms and how they operate. So Jeffers so was. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so again, we'll go into this more detail in a future interview, but I started Bone Stallion, but I never finished it. So tell us about Robinson Jeffers. Right, Robinson Jeffers was Joseph Campbell's um, pretty much his favorite poet. He's just here now. I don't think anybody reads him anymore, but um, I wanted to read him since Campbell read him. And I sat down and started reading him, and I was blown away. It's amazing. Jeffers clearly had also read Spangler. And also James Fraser's Golden Bow, so he knew the basic ideas of myth. And he was a California poet who came out of the same countryside around Monterey that John Steinbeck came out of, who had been uh, one of Campbell's closest friends. Um, the party that's thrown in Cannery Row, Campbell claims, was actually thrown for him. Uh, but Jeffers came out of the same countryside, but he was a loner. He lived uh, with his wife and, and sons in a, in a house. In, I think it's Big Sur. I've seen the house. And nobody was there at the time, and all he did was write all this wonderful poetry, uh, these narrative poems about the disintegration of civilization and what the implications are. So it's all the same themes in Jeffers that you find in Spangler and Campbell. And uh, so I read through all of his poetry, and at, at the time I finished doing that, I think, was when you had just contacted me and asked if I would like to write an essay for the newsletter. And I was like, yeah, I just read all this Robinson Jeffers. So that's what Robinson timing. Yeah. So, okay, so it was. now you're a master of all this material, and uh, what does that mean in our world today, and what, you know, how do you position yourself, how are you seen, who are you? Um, well, I see myself as a person trying to understand, the, the, you know, the chaos of what's going on around us uh, by looking at the past, having a, a deep knowledge of the past. Um, you know, I studied Egypt and Mesopotamia. Um, to teach myself specifically because I knew at that point, uh, I think I was living in San Francisco, I knew all the Jungian archetypes. I knew all the basic myth structures, <clears throat> um, what you could do to compare uh, a myth in India with a myth in China with a myth in the West, so across the board that way. But I didn't at that time know any of these civilizations in detail. And so I figured I better become a bit of a Near Eastern specialist for a while so I can understand how these processes actually originate through the whole life cycle of a civilization. So then I spent the next two years, I think, um, working uh, a job as a bookstore manager in North Beach in San Francisco and reading up on Egypt and trying to understand the entire history of Egypt as well as the entire history of Mesopotamia so that I could focus in a very strong way on what brought these civilizations into being and what are the forces we need to look at that destabilize them and cause them to collapse. So I studied those two civilizations, got a very good, intimate, almost 
<clears throat> almost a specialist knowledge of, of those two civilizations. And that gave me a very strong grounding. It was a piece that had been missing for a while um, that I needed. And so I like to bring that historical knowledge into today's field because when you look at all these guys, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, um, Jordan Pearson or uh, any of these guys, m most of them don't have a knowledge of history. Uh, you don't find it very often. And certainly the French postmodern thinkers, none of them knew history very well either. Um, and so I feel that that's something that I can bring to the table that's a bit unique, is understanding all the postmodern uh, philosophical discourse and then fusing it together also uh, with a good, strong background in archaeology, anthropology, and history as well, which tends to be lacking amongst these guys. So it gives well, me that's a suggests, sort of that suggests a book or a series of YouTubes on understanding our world today in historical terms. Right. Exactly. And so that's what fascinates me is my leading theme is what it is that causes civilizations to decay and fall apart. Nietzsche was more or less the first one to uh, identify Western civilization as becoming what he called decadent, that it was becoming nihilistic and decadent. He was sort of the first physician, you might say, of degeneracy. And he had a very clear understanding of what happens in a culture, uh, and his influence on Spengler was enormous in this respect of what happens in a culture when you bring in rationalism, like he wrote in The Birth of Tragedy where he studied how Socrates really did corrupt pretty much everyone and everything with this rationalism. Uh, he was a very close friend of Euripides, uh, and so Euripides, you know, after learning all this stuff, goes onto the stage and he destabilizes all the metaphysical traditions by making fun of them, mocking them, bringing the common man onto the stage, uh, and pretty soon, you know, within a generation or so, that's it for drama. It's done. Plato started out, by the time he arrives late to the party, he wanted to become a dramatist, but that field was it was exhausted. So he realized he couldn't do it, and he shifted gears and invented then his um, discourses, that, that whole genre that he invented, Plato's dialogues. He just invented a new genre because drama was, was done, decadent, corrupt. And so from uh, reading Nietzsche and Spengler, I began to get a very good understanding of the fact that culture cycles are morphologically uh, self-contained, they all, whether it's an art cycle, Winkelmann was the first to identify this in Germany uh, in the 18th century when he was talking about the evolution of classical Greek art as three distinct phases. There's always an inceptual period, then a floraison where mastery is achieved and suddenly everyone is awesome, and then a decadent period where that begins to fade out. And uh, Winkelmann identified it there with the Greeks. So you can identify it in individual art cycles and movements, but you can also identify it within civilizations taken as a whole. They do have life cycles uh, that follow this pattern that Spengler identified. So I tend to focus on that, trying to understand how these life cycles work uh, in relation to what's happening today on the planet. Cool. So uh, we've got about 10 more minutes. And um, what if it's five years from now and you're doing what you'd want to be doing and you've what, what would you like to be, you know, how would you like to be recognized? What would you like to be doing? I would like to actually uh, found um, a, a school or an organization based on um, cultural syncretism, based on um, instead of, uh, you know, individual disciplines and specialties, uh, based on the understanding of culture as a whole, as a totality, and bring back this German morphological understanding of, of culture forms. The Germans had this morphological understanding. Leo Frobenius uh, was a, a German anthropologist 
who also had a similar understanding of culture forms as Spangler did, and was also one of Campbell's favorite uh, authors. He hasn't been translated into English because he's regarded as a colonialist. Um, he went tracing all over Africa on various uh, plundering expeditions, I guess. But what we know about African art is a lot of it's due to Leo Frobenius's expeditions through Africa. Um, so, yes, I would, I would like to be situated in a position where uh, I could host, uh, uh, you know, intellectuals coming out and giving various talks on different subjects all across the board. And I could see myself, you know, being sort of one of the patron founders of, of such an organization. That's, it's, a, it's a goal, but um, that might be more like 10 years away than five. But all that's right. what I'm thinking yeah. about now. Cool. So, um, again, what, again, there are 600 of these videos on, uh, you have on YouTube. I notice, uh, do you have them organized in playlists? I, I have to use search to find, find them in order. No, I can never figure that stuff out. And it's okay. tedious and time consuming. I just let other people make playlists up out of my stuff. Fine. Um, so, uh, some years back, you and I started something we called Cinema Discourse, CinemaDiscourse.com, where we could apply some of this kind of thinking to movies. And um, our energy for keeping that up has kind of uh, dissipated. So what do you think about movies today? Are we failing to keep up Cinema Discourse because we've gone on to other things or because movies – don't have the energy that they used to have. That energy is now moved to the... Yeah, I I call it post-classic cinema. I've got a whole book on post-classic cinema that I think uh, digitization killed cinema, because it can't be an accident that film starts really declining right about the year 2000, just as everything is going over to uh, digitization and analog celluloid is being left behind. And then suddenly it's, it's a new medium. It's not film anymore the way we knew it when we grew up. And so is that, is that the, and petrified. But is that the problem, or is the problem that in a long-form TV series like Counterpart, you can have no. literally 50 hours to develop characters? Right. Well, digitization has something to do with it, it's simply because of the timing. I mean, it can't be an accident. George Lucas's uh, prequels, his Star Wars prequels, had a lot to do with this because he was the first to really start completely digitizing films. And those films are fun, but they're nowhere near as good as the original three. Um, they're fun, but um, right, it's right at that point that what happens is um, Hollywood begins to stiffen up with uh, going back and simply reworking the big hits of the 70s and 80s with all of these remakes that come in and rebooting. Even the, the Star Wars prequels are guilty of this, uh, going back and let's go back and do Star Wars again. Uh, right. and pretty soon that's all we're getting is you know reboots and sequels. Um, there's no real creative risk-taking going on in Hollywood uh, anymore. I think back in the 70s, they had some good producers in there. What's his name? The guy, was it Bob Evans? Or what, who am I thinking of who introduced all this uh, avant-garde enthusiasm into Hollywood? He was one of the big executives out there who was in charge of uh, financing for things like the Godfather films and all kinds of stuff. And there was all kinds of risk-taking going on in the 70s and the 80s. And back then, film was a dangerous medium. You never knew what you were going to be what kind of thing you were going to be exposed to, what kind of difficult theme was going to be explored in the new Martin Scorsese film, you know, for instance, or whatever it happened to be. That risk-taking now is just gone. And so mm. once that's gone, you're in a post-classic mode. And as Spengler and Winkelmann identified, a post-classic mode is simply a mode in which you're just repeating the cliches of what 
that medium had accomplished when it was at its apogee. You're just reiterating a fixed stock of forms over and over again. It's petrified, dead, done, and gone, just like uh, Greek theater was in the time, by the time Plato arrived. Um, so that's where I think film is at right now, and I think that's the real reason why uh, I haven't gone on to cinema discourse much because I haven't seen many films lately that have impressed me. Um, I did like the Blade Runner sequel quite a bit, Blade Runner 2049. I thought yeah. it was pretty magnificent for, for, for a sequel. That was not bad at all. Right. Um, but there haven't been that many films. The Arrival is a good one. Uh, the same director there, Denis Villeneuve, uh, that was also very good. Um, and uh, the one about the shimmer with Natalie Portman, what, what was that called? Um, <laughs> the title escapes me, but that, that was pretty good, too. It wasn't that. But uh, by and large, I just don't even go to the cinema anymore. I think the last film I went out and saw was this, the Star Wars film, which I thought was horrible. Um, and so I don't uh, – yeah, I'm just not a fan of, of the current state of, of cinema right now. But so, as you say, I mean, the new medium is the Netflix. Uh, can't call it a TV show, but it's a an, an internet show, and that is where all the creative energy is going right now. And something like Breaking Bad, which I thought was absolutely fantastic, five seasons of absolutely superb writing, yeah. um, lots of good shows going on in the Netflix Amazon Prime uh, universe. Uh, that it's seems to be where all the creative power has gone. Right, that the average person has a 55-inch uh, flat screen. And I, you know, being I remember rushing out when Walter Murch re-edited Touch of Evil to see the very first showing of it so that it would be a perfect, um, a perfect print, you know, without any scratches or whatever. And seeing what could be done in a black-and-white movie and how to handle those blacks and you couldn't get those blacks on a TV screen, and now you can on a flat screen. I notice I'm looking at my flat screen when it's off, and it's black, <laughs> right. like the old white gray of an old TV. And so uh, the fact that you can have uh, fantastic technical capabilities, resolution and, and color effects, et cetera, on a home screen um, – is another, uh, besides the fact that you can make something, you know, for 50 hours or something, uh, are um, a real challenge to movies. I think they have to really rethink what can you do in 90 minutes. <laughs> right, exactly. It's a different world now with the Internet. It's, it's totally restructuring everything. Right. Um, so listen, uh, let's wrap up. This is John Lobel. You've been listening to Visionaries. And this is the first of a series of uh, interviews I want to do with John David Ebert. And go to um, YouTube and put in John David Ebert, and you'll find uh, uh, lots and lots of uh, his um, Talking Head series. And in our next interview, we'll talk about intellectual foundations, today's thinkers, hypermodernity. Uh, so, um Check out uh, this show in a couple of days on visionaries.podbean.com. John, thank you. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me on, John. Great. Talk to you again soon. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye.